Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning into the weekly episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Chris Geisler. Chris is the founder of Asgard Data, a company enabling customers to build products and monetize their data through stringent analysis. Chris has woven his curiosity about technology and its practical application into his life's work, where he has held senior positions at Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, as well as serving as an adjunct professor at the Lake Forest Graduate School of Management. Chris frequently presents on data, analytics, business strategy, and it has advised organizations on how to use technology and data to optimize their vision. We cover everything from the challenges of parenting with technology to lessons Chris learned during his run for Congress in the 8th Congressional District of Illinois. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, Chris Geisler. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to sit down and uh, and chat all things data, entrepreneurship, leadership, even politics. Uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> yeah. to have you here, man. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, as, as I've gone through my life, I, I find computer science and data more and more interesting. It is, is not something, I think, in reflection that I ever thought that I would be interested in, especially growing up, you know, just constantly playing sports, be exposed to sports. My entire life was sports. Not that I looked down upon computer science and anything of the sort of mathematics, et cetera, but it just wasn't really in my orbit. And as I've gotten older, you know, you really realize that the world that we live in, the cogs that move the machine are data and computer science. You cannot go anywhere. Well, you could, but it would take some skill uh, without your phone. So I'm curious, at what point in your life did you become obsessed with the power of data? You know, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I probably started out just like you. I mean, my, my, uh, my early years were really just kind of more kind of middle of the road type of stuff, sports, friends, things like that. And uh, I kind of jokingly say that my foray into technology was really just the point in time where I graduated. So when I, when I left college, you know, the first job I took up, they basically said, we've got this computer stuff we don't know how to do. <laughs> you know, so I was like an intern in a department and it was like, okay, can you key this into your know, Lotus one, two, three for us? I mean, that'll age me a little bit, right? It's like, yeah, how hard can it be? I can't break it at all. And basically, you know, not being afraid of technology allowed me to kind of start to pave a path where, you know, I was a little more proficient than anybody else when willing to try more things out and kind of, you know, because people around me were scared of themselves. I mean, when I started my career, I mean, think about the old mainframe CRTs on somebody's desktop and keying stuff in there. And, you know, I'm the first person to have the PC on the desk because I was the only person who knew how to boot it up and do some basic things. But so that's really how I got into it was just no one else, you know, understood this stuff. I mean, I grew up with a computer in the home and not that I coded or anything, but I had a level of comfort that allowed me to kind of go in and try more things out. And it just kind of sent me down a path of being in technology. Did, was there any sentiments of like outcast within the professional setting, like going into that and, and really embracing this kind of nuance area where, like you said, other people were maybe a little turned off by it? Like, was there any concern that maybe you were investing your time in the wrong place? No, it, it's kind of funny because I have friends that I grew up with that dove deep. I mean, I had a friend that, you know, one of my best friends from high school, he was the guy that took everything apart. He was the first guy to figure out how to code stuff on his own. So I saw what he and my other friends are doing. I'm like, okay, those guys are so far down the road for me. I will never catch up in this realm of technology. So, I mean, I kind of describe it as kind of like a blue collar approach that, you know, kind of got it out and figure it out. 
And just that, you know, that notion of trying things. And then all of a sudden we realized in the department, oh, you know, Chris can figure this out, call him over and he'll be able to open the application or he'll know what this command means or whatever. You know, and that's kind of how it just took traction is just kind of being the one guy in the office is willing to kind of try and not afraid to break it. And we all kind of have that parents like, well, I don't know if I hit this key, if I'm going to break the computer, you're not going to break the computer, right? But I mean, think about kind of growing it up in an office where 90% of the people around you, that was their fear. They were afraid of breaking technology. Like, okay, if you open it and the program crashes, you just open it again or control it delete, right? I mean, these things aren't detrimental, but, you know, there was this fear of, again, you know, this had to be late 80s, early 90s. People really, computers weren't really mainstream. Personal computers weren't mainstream in, in a professional setting. Maybe the secretary had one, but it wasn't at scale. So it's just that willingness to kind of jump in and try stuff out that started me down the path. It it is really remarkable to think back. I mean, even you know, I'm 33 now. I still have memories of pre-computer time. Like I remember when we got our first Mac and the thing. I mean, dude, remember the first you know big flat screen televisions you put in your living room and it's like 85 percent of the wall in the room. And it's got that big back. I mean, this thing was a, a monstrous rock of a computer, and the hard drive was huge. And it would take, you know, 50, it's like starting your car in wintertime. Like, <laughs> you got to turn the thing on and wait, and then it makes these horrible noises. And you could do a couple Word documents on there, and you could play that game where, you know, you shoot the planes out of the, the sky yeah, as yeah, they yeah. fall down. To go from that, just not not even as a kid, like not really even seeing the potential or, or even being a kid that was thinking about the potential of what that would be to how much it is integrated into every single second of my life as an adult. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed the podcast and the guests that I have on, please support it by checking out my amazing sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted something to complement my sleep efforts, something nutritionally beneficial to start my day immediately following a good night's rest. That's when I discovered AG1, well before they became a sponsor. With over 75 vitamins and minerals, there's no better boost to my morning routine. But this isn't snake oil and false promises. Quality is of the utmost importance, and I can only stand besides companies that embody the values and attention to detail that I have. And check this out. Athletic Greens contains less than one gram of sugar, no genetically modified organisms, no nasty chemicals, and it honestly tastes good, while costing less than $3 a day. So, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com abe. Again, that's athleticgreens.com abe to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Did you feel that writing on the wall? Um, I don't know if I felt the writing on the wall, but I think in my own case, the fact that I was at least a half a step ahead of everybody else, I knew the questions were going to come my way. So if there was a new application getting rolled out, I spent a little more time getting familiar with it because then was going to say, well, you know, the kid knows how to do it. He'll figure this out. Right. So that kind of was the, the foray into it. So I think being that, that step ahead of everybody, you know, allowed me to kind of start to, I, I would say probably start to develop the sense of where things could go which is really kind of proliferate through my consulting career of, of maybe I don't know this point in time or I don't know this industry, but I can borrow examples where I see other things going and bring them back to the opportunity and say, okay, you know, this is happening in, let's say, retail or this is happening in financial services. You know, we can use those as examples, say, but even back then it's like, well, if this guy's using a spreadsheet to do this, well, maybe I can use a spreadsheet to do that. 
So it was kind of just pushing the edges a little bit of seeing what was possible. So when someone say, how did you figure out? I'm like, I don't know, spreadsheet does these four things. It could probably do this fifth thing as well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable what it, how many things you can monitor within a, a business. I mean, I even, there was this one episode of, uh, I forget the name of the show. It's hosted by Guy Raz, how this is made or, or something like that. Great. I'm going to completely butcher the name <laughs> of the show. Right. But they were talking, they had interviewed this, um, woman who he, she did this Ted talk about dating and she had basically used Excel to find her partner. And so she had categorized every single date that she had been on, ranked them, sorted them, developed small equations to work through them, and then ultimately select for the best quality, like the most necessary qualities down to the least necessary and cross-reference them against people within her spreadsheet. And I, I just thought that was such an interesting utilization of again, what maybe in the past would have just looked at as like some kind of nerdy computer program that, you know, why would I ever need to know that? And here someone is like propelling their love life forward. It's pretty, pretty cool. Well, it's fun. You know, you know, I'll give you my own example. So when we named our daughters, right, my wife and I went through the whole list of names we had in a spreadsheet. So she's an accountant. You know, I'm a, I'm a consultant by, by background. So we had let's say masters of the spreadsheet exactly and you know what's funny is you want to talk about how, how spouses can have arguments it's how do you use excel we could not have two different ways of using excel she uses all the shortcuts and there's a whole different set of financial commands i'm doing a whole different set of like sorts and pivots and whatnot i mean it's like <laughs> different kind of arguments happen sometimes but to the example you're using right so we had all the names for our daughter both times both our daughters on a spreadsheet and we had like a power ranking and we have like different criteria. So each column had a different level of criteria. And then you start to filter like which ones, you know, start to remove themselves because, okay, well, someone knew a cousin with that name or there was a person in school or didn't really like the sound with the whole name worked out together. So, yeah, we had a power ranking that worked through in a spreadsheet, both of our daughters' names. They actually asked for those files today. We have to dig them up. But they actually want to see <laughs> what like, their options are. Why wasn't were. I C5 or B6? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like has there ever been or, or – and maybe this is more of like a, a macro concern about data, but a point at which you feel like the collection of data and the anal analysis of data had led you pretty far astray from what you were after. And how, how should we be controlling for that type of thing in a decision-making process? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. A few years ago, I did a presentation on data-driven decision-making. Um, and I think that when you look at decision-making, you, you can't divorce yourself from kind of the context, the experience that you have and the knowledge you have and what the data tells you. And I think, you know, if you index too far on either side of that, you get to an, an answer that doesn't mean anything, right? So for example, when you talk to an executive and they say, how'd you make that decision? I use gut. You made like one of the most important decisions of your life and you used your gut. Well, there's probably some calculus that goes on in there, but they rely probably 70% on instinct and 30% on experience and, and data. But I think you can go so far the other way that you can see things in data that don't make sense. I mean, a classic example is like whenever someone tries to, you know, correlate events, right? There's a correlation between these events. Well, correlation like doesn't mean Like ice cream sales causation. and crime. What's that? Right. Like crime sales and ice cream sales. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or like crime and ice cream sales, I mean. Yeah, I mean, you can find statistical correlation across anything you want. But if you don't bring context to that, it's it doesn't make sense in the real world. And you know, when you have things like artificial intelligence and some of the machine learning capabilities that are out there, 
I mean, sometimes people just, you know, where I think there's a big gap, especially when, you know, large organizations think they're going to adopt AI as an example, they think just turn on the magic AI machine and, and magic will shuffle to the top. And it really doesn't work yeah. that way, right? I mean, you know, there'll be, <laughs> there'll be mathematically stuff may shuffle to the top, right? Because basically it's just, it's all correlations. It's all, you know, figuring out averages and means and seeing what, what, what shakes out. But if you don't bring context to the situation, it's going to, it's not going to mean anything. So you'll hand a decision over to somebody. It's like, well, what do you mean blue cars sold in November with three tires are going to sell more? Well, the data says it, that makes no sense. Right. So you have to have context. Right. Yeah. It's going to be wild as, uh, as artificial intelligence continues to integrate itself within our day-to-day -day life, within the decision-making process of companies and how we maintain the human element in there. And maybe where should we maintain the human element? within the decision-making process, because I, I feel like as a human, it's going to be tough when we start to let some of that go, which I mean, my personal views are that it's a little bit inevitable, especially because of the power of the decision-making skills around continually improving programs, but mm -hmm. we are going to want to be involved because it's our innate, desire to be participating in the decision-making process. But it sounds like, I mean, listen to what you're saying, like there's a fine line there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a guy that I worked with years ago had a, had a way of describing it. And, you know, the, the, the example he would say is like when you went into a store and you, you know, maybe you were looking at, I don't know, bed linens and you walk out and you didn't buy one and all of a sudden you get a pop-up from the store. Hey, bed linens are in sale on aisle six. You know, in his mind, that you start to that's when it starts to get creepy, right? So his 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 hypothesis, and he he's a consultant I've worked with a few years ago, is like you want to kind of be creepy minus one, right? When you start to <laughs> use those tools, right? You don't want to make someone like right. someone's looking over your shoulder and they're gonna, you know, they're right in your business. But if you kind of if someone's walking out the store, that might be a time to send a pop up. Hey, listen, you know, we have a special on linens. Okay, well, I was in the linen section, and you know, context kind of makes sense. But right. once you leave the store and you get in the car, it pops up. It's like, all right, this is this is maybe a little too much. So, I think that's the real the real challenge. And there are a lot of people are now speaking and talking about where AI starts to become intrusive, uh, where models mm -hmm. are making decisions that have no context. Um, I mean, you know, some of the classic examples. There's actually a, a book that was written a few years ago called "Weapons of Math Destruction," and <laughs> what it really talks about title. is the misuse of of, of data. And the implications. So, for example, you know, we talk about like crime, you know, crime in certain cities and how police are hired and how certain precincts are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're covered from a crime perspective. Well, they go back to reports, handwritten reports from 50, 60 years ago, and they're still policing based upon human bias in those reports. Yeah. And old did that, you know, didn't have any sort of, it was filled with bias. So, but you know, a lot of org, a lot, you know, in this example here, right? They're still allocating police to police forces and 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 whatnot into these communities based upon these old human bias based written reports. So, that's the thing where AI becomes really interesting is you can prove anything you want in the math, but you also have to recognize the kind of bias either that's in the data um, or the bias of the person who's actually doing the work with the data itself. Like, you know, do they lack cultural context or do they have is there academic bias? Like, what kind of things are they bringing into it that might be influencing a model? It all, almost seems like there will have to be some sort of governing body of intellectuals to 
make informed decisions around this kind of stuff because it's going to get the the problem is going to get more complex as the technology improves which i mean <laughs> the example i always return to which i find interesting is you know you look at 1980s the development of video games and the atari mm-hmm. so you have one joystick one red button one very low resolution screen yep. and between a 44 year period you have basically full immersion virtual reality augmented reality experiences that people are going through that produce real neurological reactions yeah. dopamine is actually can actually be released through something that is by a previous definition not real mm-hmm. it's not actually happening in your immediate environment it's happening in a, the creation of an environment and that's a 44 year period yeah that that is not not it's not even a grain of sand in the beaches of time it, it is nothing and that is such a leap now assume a very very low rate of progression mm-hmm. near nothing and just push the timeline out what's 300 years like what's 500 years like yeah. and and the amount of integration from person to person within our life given you know our Apple watches, our iPhones, our computers, like the th- the, you're, it won't be undone. No. I guess is what I'm getting at. So how are we going to learn to live with it and then live with it intelligently so that we can make informed choices about our integration with artificial intelligence? <laughs> well, it, it, <laughs> I don't it, even think that's a question. No, but, but I think it's an interesting topic <laughs> to explore. Wild. I think one thing is, I mean, you know, I mean, what do they say? That the time between, I want to say, like, the 40s and now, we've progressed more than we have from, like, any other time in history, right? So, like, the printing right. press, the Columbus, and all these kinds of things. I mean, everything, the, the timeline is compressed, and, and the rate of innovation and technology is, is skyrocketing. And I think that, you know, what we're in right now is, you know, you and I bring our childhood experiences. Like, when I was a kid, you know, you know, my, you'd yeah. call somebody's house when you want to see if there was a, if you can get together and play, or you'd knock on the door, right? right? I mean, now my kids are, are texting on an iPad, you know, their friends and, you know, the friend doesn't have a, an iPad or, or a text, then, you know, they're not keeping those connections. Like, let's go knock on the door. Who does that? Right. I did. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think what's happening is um, you and I are bringing context of a different of a different experience set. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we see people that's like, you know, I mean, the classic example, I mean, years ago, one of my first consulting projects, I did it for a, for a telephone company, a big telecom. And you know, people were like a cube next to each other. And this is before IM was prolific. I mean, they're messaging the person one cube over of how they would engage. I mean, you know, it's like versus step over the wall and say, hey, you know, I got a question for you. But I mean, you know, as a, as a telephone company, I mean, they were used to using technology to engage anyways. And it was just a natural thing. But it's like, we're seeing these things start to build up and people aren't, you know, kind of going beyond it. And you and I kind of say, well, walk, get up, walk around. I mean, these things make complete sense. But technology is filling some of that role i think so i think to one degree it's like it's happening quickly and we bring that historical context i think the other thing too is you know we can use COVID as an example anyone with a kid during COVID in this last cycle saw their kids take to these technologies and parents are scared now but that's the world these kids are living in right so for example like these my daughters you know if they can't find a friend that they can text with then you know it doesn't occur to them the other options or avenues to engage because that's the community that they're building. Right. So it, I think, you know, at a point in time, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think you get a few years out 
and you know our good old days will be like when we did you know played in the streets and didn't care about traffic and you know car get out of the street then get back in right theirs are going to look a little bit different and it's not going to be wrong but they're going to grow up around they're going to be familiar with it and i think the other part too is they're going to just they're going to have those signals like okay when i've gone too far with technology or when someone's misusing it like we have all these red flags they're figuring theirs out for their context and culture i feel like there's also the there's the fact that a lot of these artificial intelligent integrations and emergings with technology are really beneficial I mean, they're wonderful they're great i mean to you know be able to navigate for example through a city safely from a to b with zero mistakes while you pay attention to what's going on in the road that's a huge plus yeah. or being able to you know my grandmother lives in Maine. She doesn't live near me. We're, we're much more siloed in our existence, I think, as, as humans than we were in the past, where you had like a more nuclear unit of people close to each other. And then, you know, the younger kids take care of the older family. But being able to FaceTime with my grandmother, that's the same experience for both of us. Mm -hmm. That's amazing mm -hmm. to have an actually emotionally stimulating person to person experience without actually physically having to buy the plane ticket, go there and do that, which to both of our lives would be an inconvenience in some cases. Right, right. That's a huge win. Then that's not even touching on the entire like medical healthcare use of a lot of technologies, which are greatly benefiting us as a society and as a world. Mm -hmm. But it's that that fear of like losing your your human element in it. But but the thing that's really interesting to me is. I have like a, kind of two concerns with it. One is that technology takes over our life, but then the other one is technology frees up our life, right? Because we can become wildly more efficient with the time that we do use to do things and produce stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's the possibility that that now opens up all this time that, you know, maybe historically was spent doing aspects of hard labor or relationship management that now you can spend more time with your family, your friends, your community that might've been closed off. So it's these two possible worlds that we don't really get to know what the expression will be until we're there. Right. But I'm not convinced that, I mean, like I said in the past, I'm very like pro integration with AI. I think it's going to be good, a net positive, but it is interesting that there's always those two kind of possibilities there. Well, but I think anytime technology, you know, presents itself, you kind of have those two possibilities, right? I mean, and it's really going to be kind of in the hands of the creator, right? When you give someone these tools, I mean, you know, in medicine, right? I mean, there's techniques that, you know, people in the right hands can do amazing things with and in the wrong hands can do disastrous things with. So I think it's to some degree, it's that freedom what technology does and, and kind of our own will and ability to explore and try to figure these things out. Um, I think the AI stuff gets really interesting because, you know, to some degree, I think this is kind of where you're going, right? AI gets, you know, a really bad rap because you've got people like Elon Musk saying, you know, get ready for Terminator kind of stuff, right? It's the end of the world as we know because AI is going to be, you know, unsupervised and take over all these things and make these malicious decisions. You got people like Mark Cuban's like, get on board because this is where it's going one way or another, right? And, you know, I think we haven't figured those things out, right? So again, like anything else when technology presents itself the morals, the ethics, the standards haven't presented themselves with. I mean, you made a, a, a comment a moment ago, and I could easily see a future state that almost like you have a company's financials get audited. I could see their AI get audited. Like, to, let's see the models you're using. Let's see the bias that was built into them. How are you maintaining? Because 
you can't just turn it on and walk away with these things either, right? Because it's built on only the knowledge you have and the experience they have. Well, if you have it on for six months, now there's six months more worth of data. The AI, those models, those tools should evolve and recognize that, you know, for example, if Amazon recommended when you buy this shoe, you buy, you know, these socks with it. Well, if no one's buying the socks, Amazon knows to stop promoting the socks, right? They'll promote something else. So, right. I mean, it's the same kind of idea. Your models need to evolve with time. And, and, I, and I can see a future state where these models might have to go through some sort of model management and audit process just for some of those concerns. What concerns do you have regarding AI, if, if any, of, of the future? Being someone you know, as knowledgeable as you are with data and, and its integration, specifically within business and, and the decision-making process, like what are kind of your red flags shot from the mountaintop that, that we should be talking about, be concerned about, and, and have discussions about? Well, I think the first thing is recognizing that AI is not a panacea to solve all your business's problems. I mean, as a consultant, you know, I've been in enough situations where, you know, the CEO says, we're going to do all these things with data and make these great proclamations to Wall Street. And all of a sudden, someone in the back of the house says, how do I make these things happen, right? I mean, the technology isn't there, our skills aren't there, our people aren't there. So, you know, I think that's where I start to get concerned. Someone just thinks the magic's going to happen when they start to do things with data and integrate in their systems. But at the same time, too, you know, organizations that are, are so far the other direction, like we don't have cloud computing, we don't have data scientists, we don't have engineers, so we're not going to do it at all. I think they're equally as poor off. I think what you have to do is, you know, I think any organization getting started has to start to pick small, simple, demonstrable use cases and start to learn about the data they collect, uh, you know, look at the data, do an analysis, compare that analysis with what they would have done historically, and just start to learn and iterate from there. I mean, a lot of people talk about right. data like building data product, right? You have to try to treat these things like in a lab, like an R&D setting, try to understand how it works, and then scale up and scale out as you develop proficiency and that'll help them make some decisions. And I think organizations that don't take that serious, um, people that out oversell, I mean, you know, I mean, there's a couple examples. I won't say companies, but anyone can look them up. I mean, there's been examples of companies who've led with AI and done commercial campaigns around AI and they've fallen short on promises. I mean, there was an article written, I think Wired wrote the article, and they were basically talking about one of these technologies was deployed in a healthcare setting, and people with cancer thought they were gonna be cured because there was the magic of this right. AI that was gonna solve and cure their cancer, and it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, all the models we're doing at that point in time was just reading all the literature on cancer and helping doctors matter, make a better diagnosis. It wasn't curing cancer, it was helping them process all the information about cancer that was out there. So that's where I start to get concerns. We start making these promises that aren't reasonably fulfilled. And then we start turning on models we don't understand what they're doing. And I don't, and I, it's not like, it's not intentional or deliberate. It's like someone gets started, they think it works, mm -hmm. and then they walk away and, and you know, no one's really kind of checking on what's going on in the back room. Yeah, I, I listened to this interesting podcast between, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Sam Harris. He's a, a podcast host, a neuroscientist and an author. And he had this uh, computer scientist named Eliza Yudkowsky on and they were just talking specifically about artificial intelligence, threats, concerns, positives. And Eliza used this interesting example about um, a paperclip manufacturer. And if you were to optimize an artificial intelligent machine to produce as many paperclips as it possibly could, it is going to do that at the cost of everything, mm -hmm. right? Because that's its one objective function is to make paper clips. If it has to use, you know, unchecked 
use every single available resource in the in the known world to produce paper clips. It is going to do that. It will kill you. It'll kill your friends. It, it doesn't matter. It's one goal and function is to do this thing. Yeah. So that if you take that example to any other situation, like you do need to have a a control or at least a group of people that it's not just a light switch, right? It's a light switch with constant assessment, reevaluation, like you said, taking into account new information you're collecting over a time period to reinform the original decision making process so that it adapts to make more informed choices, not just choices. Yeah. And it seems like because it's such a a popular thing, integration of artificial intelligence for business, that unless you have a responsible group of people taking that on, then maybe it does pose a risk. So like, how do you instill values around AI integration and uphold kind of a standard from company to company to company, despite competition, to make sure that this these types of things are done in the right way? Because that's that to me seems like the challenge. Well, I mean, I, I think a couple of things. I think first of all, you know, what 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 I, one of the things I find, you know, maybe comforting, if you will, in the process is inevitably someone who ha- who understands the technology gets pulled into the conversation, and they can kind of help set the record straight. Like they, they I mean, I think one of the right. things that's made AI really um, a complicated topic is you've got the science fiction view of AI, right, mm-hmm. Terminator and whatnot, and then you've got kind of the, you know someone who just completely marginalizes and dismisses it, we can do the same thing with people or with a simple, you know, prediction model and does, we don't need to go that far. So once you kind of get to people who actually understand how the technologies work, I think there's a really good level set there. For, uh, for example, a friend of mine um, who works in healthcare, I mean, they want to do all these things with AI and Emily, he's kind of like, okay, there's a cost, right? We can build everything yeah. you want in AI, but there's a cost, right? There's a processing cost, a computing cost, a resource cost, a data cost. I mean, there's all these costs associated. So we have to make, we have to be very clear and specific about where we're going to deploy these technologies and for what purpose. Uh, and then make sure that, you know, that when they're on and running, there's a cost to maintain them and keep them current. So, you know, to some degree, you have these people who have these wish lists, and then you get to the pragmatist and say, okay, it fits in these certain use cases, we can do it. And then they can also kind of separate the, I know what you're trying to accomplish, just don't use the word AI and I can get you there. I mean, so there's those kinds of conversations right. too. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can only imagine that the the example I think of here is like with the atomic bomb, that you had this development of this bomb and it, scientists that were pretty sure that it was going to do something, mm-hmm. but they weren't 100% sure. But there was competition around the world to get this thing developed and, and test it. And so when they actually tested it, they, they truly didn't know how it would go and that that blows my mind that not stupid people didn't know how it would go the smartest scientists in the world who had done it who made it and they were pretty sure but the on the other side of pretty sure it was like global destruction yeah. and they greenlit the thing so then I, I see this somewhat of a similar environment in the in the world of i mean i guess anything anything that's going to involve artificially intelligent decision-making is that there's this competitive element, right? That you don't want to be last place in the race. And with, with your experience, do you feel like that's a fair concern that competition within different markets, within different industries is going to lead to the actual 
real risk of artificial intelligence, of, of turning the on switch that can't be flipped off because you're trying to be the first to do it? No, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I think, I mean, let's use examples like Facebook, right? I mean, for all, I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, wh- you know, one of the things that, that's, that was fascinating is, you know, I saw the movie, um, The Social Network. No, The Social Network. Um, I'm drawing a blank on yeah, it. Yeah, no. Social Network. Um, and uh, and my, I had my kids see it, right? And, uh, and, and the whole notion was, you know, the technology is out there, and I think where groups exploit them. So the whole thing with Facebook, and for example, or they, and they had kind of a mock of it was Facebook and all the executives they interviewed with these companies, these technology companies, talk about their experience and exposure to these things. Oh, <clears throat> social dilemma. Thank you. Thank you. Thank gotcha. you. Yeah, there we Tristan go. Tristan Harris, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, but I mean, but that, so that notion, so I think there's things that are going to keep it in check, right? I mean, and again, I think regulators are going to lean in. I mean, I think, the, I think this is an example where, like I go back to the example I said a moment ago, like my first job, I was the kid who was kind of willing to push technology a little bit, you know, without who, who knew if I'd break it. You know, right. now we see those kinds of conversations happening at the legislative level. I mean, they're bringing in these executives and these companies like, explain how these things work. At right. some point in time, the people asking the questions will have enough context to say, hey, listen, I know you're, what you've sold everybody. I know you're telling your shareholders. Here's where this will and won't work, and here's where we're going to start to regulate you. So I think those things will start to present themselves. You know, I think, and, and the question is, will, we, will, will the behaviors of, of companies and individuals get so far ahead that by the time regulators come in behind, it's too late? Or, or will there be an opportunity to kind of wheel, reel them in sooner? And I think that, I think it really reflects, I mean, you know, it, you, know, we, you know, I think it's an important point in our country too, which is our political activism, right? I mean, are we sending people into the conversations that actually have the technical acumen to ask the right questions? I mean, when you right. have an 80 year old senator who, you know, you know, who's still working with a BlackBerry, they're not qualified to ask right. Zuckerberg what he's doing with Facebook. Well, and you see that in these congressional hearings exactly. when Zuckerberg's up on the stand. It's almost like they're just speaking different languages. I mean, how, the questions don't land because there's such a gap between the understanding of the representatives and then the person that they're putting on trial, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As someone who's <laughs> invented Facebook. Yeah. And he's like, I've legally technically answered your question. Next question, right? As opposed to like, you didn't actually get the answer you were looking for, but he can check the box because he's got his attorney saying, just say this and move on. And maybe it's a positive that we're having these stumblings now when, you know, the at least seemingly immediate risks of artificial intelligence aren't race-threatening, right? Aren't, aren't, aren't planetary-threatening. And so we can have stumbles. Well, and I would say that, you know, it's applied in so many different disciplines too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, while you've got Silicon Valley in this arms race of being able to predict consumer behavior and make recommendations and get people to stick on the app and use it for as long as possible, you know, you also have a global setting where people are using these technologies in different ways. I mean, you know, one of the things we, we often hear is how the U.S. is behind, for example, China when it comes to their their, their exploration and understanding and investment in AI, right? You've got a government that's dedicating resources to it versus entrepreneurs who are trying to solve kind of consumer-based problems around it. So right. I think that, you know, yeah. I, I think that, you know, in the consumer setting, our risks are probably manageable because if someone does something malicious, reputation, you know, takes them down quickly and people move away from the platform. Uh, I think that if you, they, I think we're, we should ex- be exploring the outer limits should be in those academic and those government levels because we have to know what's possible with these tools. I mean, 
you know, if you can turn on a switch and take down somebody's, you know, infrastructure because you develop the tools and they can predict, you know, consumption patterns and whatnot. I mean, right. there's real consequence behind that. I think we have to have really smart people understanding, you know, how far this can go and be prepared for it. Are there concerns for you personally being a father and having children that are interacting with technology at such a young age? I, I think back, my, my fiance and I talk about this all the time. What a hellish time to be going to high school. I mean, high school, when I was in high school, I, I personally liked it, I, but athlete, athletics were, you know, the large majority of my time. So I was very consumed. Right. It's, I enjoyed high school, but still high school is, it's nasty. I mean, there's, it's a, a Petri dish of n- people who don't know what's going on yet, don't know who they are, uh, are just, you know, privy to make fun of the next person for no reason. Yeah. And the popularity contest that exists wasn't numerical. It was suggested. It was kind of like, oh, you know, you think this person might be popular. They might be nerdy, whatever. It's, it, it doesn't matter in hindsight, but there was no way to quantify it. Now it's quantifiable. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being in a classroom where the measuring stick is followers on a social media app or views on a video and what kind of psychological changes that would be making in an already very fertile mind, you know, it's super malleable. Yeah. So are there, knowing what, you, knowing what you know about data, right, and how these companies are operating to try to maximize the time that we spend on them, our utilization of them, how much we're watching, and then to have children that are coming up in that, it's, how do you manage that? You just, you've just nailed my entire summer conversation with my oldest daughter. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, but, but I think you're, you're, dude, you've nailed it. I mean, because that's one of the things I think as parents you've got to be really cognizant of. And I mean, there's a guy that's doing some work with me, and he's got a 14-year-old daughter, and we are sharing stories. And one of the things he says is, as a parent, you have to be the one to be looking at these technologies before your kid brings it to you. And if you think about right. things like, you know, if it's Snapchat or TikTok or Fortnite or any one of these things that these kids are getting involved with, you, know, you go back to you know the Atari and the joystick, right? I mean, it was super easy for dad to jump in with the joystick and the one button because it wasn't overly complicated controller. And now there's 40 right. buttons, or people are playing video games on a computer keyboard, right? I mean, you know, so yeah. so I think that the, the whole notion is as parents, I think first of all, we have to, we can't just you know say we can't understand this technology and walk away. We have to be active and a part of it. Um, right. You know, so for example, again, you know, we we have we have a huge discussion here because my daughter wants TikTok. I've got views why I don't think she needs TikTok yet. She's got some friends on it, um, so we kind of said, okay, we're going to roll out an app at a time over the summer because we recognize this is how this this group, this social group, is communicating. So right now, the one she wants to use is Snapchat. So fine, we're going to use Snapchat. We're going to be on the accounts with you. You know, we're going to be a part of monitoring and and, and being a part of the process as, as she adopts it. And then once we have a level of proficiency and comfort, then we can go on to the next step. So your friends may get out ahead of you, but that's kind of kind of how it plays. I, I, what's interesting is, you know, in the community that I'm a part of with, with other parents, we're all comparing notes back and forth. So I gave an example of, of the one right. friend of mine who says, you got to be doing it with your kids. We've got friends that say absolutely no technology. Somewhere all the technology goes away and the kids get thrown outside to play in, in the yard. Well, right. that's the world you and I grew up in, but... The, the challenge there is, is that that's not where their community is necessarily existing. So you can't right. say no because that's yep. where they're building their social network. That's where they're building their tools. That's where they're building their community engagement. Because guess what? When they're 30 and 40, those will be the tools they grew up using. 
you know, as opposed to like go back, yeah. back to my grandparents saying, when we grew up, we had the party line. It was one line that went to six houses. And if somebody was on, you had to wait your turn, right? I mean, you know, it, that, 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 so I said, I think part of it's like, it's here. And I think parents have to be involved. They have to be engaged. They can't pretend it doesn't exist. Um, I think the other thing too, and this is, this is actually, is it goes back to some of the other stuff we were talking about before is, um, I think we have to take advantage of some of the resources that are in place as parents, as these technologies are rolled out. I'll give you an example. The same friend of mine, uh, has gone through a really scary situation with his daughter that basically had a, another kid, a kid in the school that just became a stalker to her and was sending her messages. And the first set of messages that went out were from a personal account and the school's like, well, it's a personal account. We can't get involved. Once the messaging right. went through the school technology, then the school could get involved. So, so oh, I see what you're saying. So you're you, you're basically leveraging a loop a loophole, a good loophole, but you're leveraging a loophole to help remedy this situation that isn't inherently designed within the app or the legal structure. Yeah, yeah. So for example, like you know, our school has a pretty, I mean, he's he's a pretty solid technology expert. So, you know, I, I've met him a couple of times. So when we were talking about getting my kids up with account, I'm like everything is going to be set up with their school email address. Because I right. know that the school monitors all the behaviors going through the school Gmail and all those things. So that if something's wrong, he can step in and he can see all the records and, and, and have the appropriate level of engagement and involvement. Because, I mean, that's they've, wow. that's what they've equipped him to do. I mean, it, it's kind of the contra of like years ago when they said, don't sit stuff on your work computer because IT can figure it out. Right. right. Well, now it's being deployed in, in, acad in academia. So now my, my, I advocate for my daughters to be using their school accounts because well, the see, school so can here, monitor. Here's another, here's an example of like, it's that, that coin flip again, right? So on one side of it, you have, I mean, for a high, a high school or middle schooler. Uh, well, it's a middle school. Yeah, yeah. So for, to experience stalking in middle school in and of itself is horrible mm -hmm. to experience technological it's like one more onion layer that doesn't really make sense for that age group or i mean even you know even as an adult it, that's not a welcomed experience at any point in right. your life but on the flip side of that i and i had never even thought about this until you just said it but it, it's really interesting to have like a technology technology or, or data expert at a school to help manage these kind of things within the flow of communication amongst kids i i in i mean in talking through this there's definitely cons big brother concerns here of like how much monitoring and, and oversight do you want in that setting when you're trying to learn how to make mistakes and and move forward as a kid mm -hmm. but at the same time if you could quell really nasty behavior on the fringes of how children are communicating with each other then there's like a really strong use case for for artificial intelligence and data collection. Because if you're like, okay, look, you know, every time that kids get on the network at this time and they talk about this, this, or this, statistically to like, you know, 95%, it's gonna produce this outcome. Yeah. And we and as a school, as a group of parents, as a whatever, a homeowners association, if it's in your community, this is an outcome we don't want. So let's work backwards from this problem and then try to correct it in the behavior. And so that could be a really huge thing yeah. for development within a school. And maybe it could produce, you know, talking points and, and open communication channels between faculty and students to talk about things that were off the table before, not because no one would, but because they didn't even know the table was there in the first place. 
Yeah. I think, but it, but it starts, I think, with, again, parents have to understand what the options that are out there, and they have to be a part of the, of the technology conversation with their kids. Just like doesn't give us, you know, the free pack. Like, it's like drinking, yeah. just like driving, like all those coming-of-age things, you know, just because we didn't grow up with those technologies. So, listen, we didn't have TikTok as a kid, so I just say don't use it. Okay, It doesn't work, right? We, we've learned right. you can't tell a teenager abstaining doesn't work. <laughs> so you've got right, to find right. a way to, to keep up the conversation and say, here's my concerns. Here's why I think, you know, here's a good way to use the technology. Here's the way I struggle with these technologies. I'll give you an example. My daughter, you know, we're talking about Snapchat, and we laid down some pretty firm rules. First of all, no pictures other than of you, right? So if your sister's falling asleep on the couch, you can't take a picture of her. You can't take a picture. You can't take a picture of friends because, you know, one of the things I think a lot about is the whole notion of facial recognition, how that's proliferating, right? And, and you know, yeah. and, you know I mean, it's talk about rights to privacy, right? I mean, do I have a right to privacy if I'm walking down the street and your, you know, web, your cam picks a picture up of me, you know, do I, have, right. do I, should I infer a right to privacy? And that's a whole different discussion. But, um, but I want to kind of make sure she knew some guidelines that when she would adopt these technologies, how we, we, how I felt it was appropriate that it was used. And the other part too, is at any point in time, when I asked for the device, you handed over no questions asked, not close what you're doing, not clear up your messages. You know, we're going to, do, I mean, right. and, and, and it's, and it's really meant for when you see things that are, that, are questionable or uncertain or you want to get involved with, you can have a conversation. So the other part then too is when you see things you don't understand as opposed to like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you you posted this. You have to have a conversation. Why did you post this? You know, what's the story behind it? Because these words could be inferred a different way and now it's a message right. that's out there and you don't know where people take it. So it's, I mean, you know, what it, it comes down to like we talk about, you know, people running in politics or, or you know, CEOs of companies, like they're really polished on their language. All right, it's the same kind of thing now. You kind of think as like your own PR person when you put right. these things out, you can't just say something flip it because they can have consequence. I was talking with a friend about this the other day. I'm like, I'm so glad <laughs> that we went through college before social media existed. I mean, we we graduated college and two years later, Instagram really came to prominence. Mm -hmm. And you're managing your brand all the time. And you're you're doing your own PR all the time, whether you know it or not. And there's just so many instances where, again, you're just you're not doing anything wrong or illegal. You're just an, you're young. Yeah. You're and 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 I say this <laughs> from my ivory tower at 32, right? Like I'm young <laughs> now. I'm making I make errors all the time, and to not have that categorized, backlogged, and dated, and time stamped is pretty ideal and and that's not even that's not saying that you did a bunch of illegal stuff and you don't want to come to surface it's just you you lived your life as a kid you made dumb dumb decisions as an adolescent as everyone does because you're learning how the world works yeah. but you think about you know in middle school for example so if in the 90s some kid wanted to give someone a naked picture of themselves right and and violate someone else and their their personal space mm -hmm. and and do this they would have to physically take it yes get it developed it would have to make it past the developer right. at one the of walmart or exposures on the camera right <laughs> right that would have to slip through then they would have to physically get it muster up whatever heinous courage they need to develop and then physically give it to the person and and most likely be laughed out loud at immediately yeah there's zero barriers to entry at a lot of these points now. So someone could, maybe they're pressured by their friends. Maybe it's a, a social situation and they don't know how to get out of it and they do something like that. 
And now it's a major violation of someone else's privacy. It can be harassment. Right. And it can all happen at the snap of a finger, you know. And so if, you're, if, if you are a parent and you're not considering these things, we talked about you know, advisory boards or just groups that kind of are oversight for these kind of AI integrations and decisions. You kind of have to be doing what you're doing with your community, with yeah. your children. And you have to share notes. And not, not, you have to share notes. Right, not to be like a, some authoritarian, crazy parent, but just to be like, hey, let's just have a, you know, it's, it's like the birds and the bees conversation yeah. has big banged, and now there's an entire universe of... Yeah, it's just not the one or two dimensional you have like in your fifth grade health class anymore. Now it's three and four dimensions. But right. you know, I think the other part too is, you know, I think it's about community as well. So, I mean, for example, as parents, you know, we all kind of pass nose back and forth. For example, a, a good friend of mine went to a, an in, a day long workshop on parenting, and they had uh, a cybersecurity guy present, and he was talking wow. about as a parent, you know, you things you need to be aware of. I mean, think about things like grooming. Like it, it's happening, right? So as a parent, you right. need to recognize who your kids are interacting with online, what they're doing online. Like for example, a lot of the apps we don't allow our kids to use is when there's free for all chat. You know, among us, right. you know, amongst us was like you know a really popular game, and they you know, and also we heard okay, wait, what's going on? Who who's talking to you? And then all of a sudden they fixed right. all that. There's no direct messaging. There's a couple of canned messages you can send now. So they went to some links yeah. to kind of make it still kid friendly. So I think that it's you know recognizing there's there's bad actors that are going to come in. You got to find ways to, to get involved. I think the other part though too is, again, maybe my my situation is fortunate. The other group of kids that mine are a part of, we also know the parents. So right. you know, so there's group by like group buy in. It's there. like it takes a community, right? Yeah. So hey, listen, your, yeah. your your kid said something to mine. I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I just want to show it right. to you, so that you're aware, and then you can make the appropriate decision as a parent. So there's some of those yeah. conversations back and forth. Like if, if someone were to bring to me a picture my kid would do that I thought was inappropriate, she does inappropriate, you know, absolutely I would get involved and I'd ask some questions and try to make sure that, you know, we could set set things straight. And it's then it's helping those kids work out the relationship. It's also the parents making sure that there's open line of communication amongst each other as well. I mean, I'll be the first to say my kids aren't perfect. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. Right. And you're going to see things that I don't see. So I need your help. And if you're if we, you're willing to, for me to do the same with you, we're gonna have a really good relationship, and the kids are getting along great. This almost seems like a, a micro sample size of the integration problem in in society and business too. Is that this? Is, I would imagine, unfortunately, that this is probably not the majority case for parenting groups across the country. One to have a tight knit group like that where you can communicate, and then two have the foresight to be like hey we're as a team you know all the parents in this group all the the kids friends and so forth we're going to approach this together that way you know no one's outcast if they make a mistake but we can all approach it and treat it treat it well that's kind of that oversight type yeah. approach that you would need right in the real world setting to say like hey you know as a business owner we integrated this technology and this was the outcome and it was bad yeah and to have the door open enough to where you can go to another company and, and talk about the shortcomings or the benefits yeah. of some of these choices. Because in the same way that, you know, children can't be the ones left out. And the last thing that you want to be as a parent is the one that forces them to be left out. Yeah. So if all the kids have cell phones, 
I remember when I was I was the last of my friends to get a cell phone. I got a little LG flip phone when I was sixteen. I got, I got but no I, it was, in the corner out there was playing it the other day, showing it to my daughters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was probably maybe eight months or so, and it really ended up being like a, a needs based purchase that. I was skiing, I was traveling, and it, it, we needed a way to keep in touch in case of emergencies. But it wasn't, you, you couldn't do anything there. It, you could text, right. but it was very limited, and, and it, texting was new, so it wasn't integrated into my social circle. And I remember I started to feel like I was missing the party, mm-hmm. it, which is, to, I mean, you can expand that sentiment to any other situation, whether it's new clothes on the first day of school, or getting into a, a certain after-school program or theater or sports, whatever it is, that feeling of being left out from whatever it is and that being left out is out of your control kind of sucks when you're a kid. And your parents don't want that for you. They want you to feel happy and excited about your social life. And so we went back, as I'm sure a lot of parents do now because the age to do this, I'm sure, is getting younger and younger, of like, okay, now we're going to get you a cell phone and I was so psyched when I got it. Like, it really felt like a, a leg up in social communication, because it was. But you you can't be the company that doesn't integrate the software right. that makes things cheaper, faster, and better. And you can't be the parent that forces your kid to sit on the sidelines of social development solely because of the risks that might be out there. But I think I think the the, the threat in that, though, is... There's an opportunity cost on either path, right? right? And you know, and I love the story you're sharing about, you know, kind of being the latecomer and getting the technology. But you know, I think that you know the other side too is, you know, yeah, life's filled with disappointment, right? You're not going to get what you want. You're going to get a, a hand-me-down, used whatever, and right. you know that 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 in and of itself is a life experience. And and I think and I can see. You know, I can see my kids going through the same thing. Like, cell phones are a great example. It's a hot topic right now. I mean, summer, kids are not in school anymore. And they're, you know, and now some of them have cell phones. Well, what's been interesting is the first ones that got cell phones had a really compelling case. You know, the parents were split, and that's how they, the whole family stayed connected, right? So the earliest cell phone adopters right. in our community here were really parents that had split up. So it's the only way to kind of keep track of where, where you know, mom and dad and kid were, right? So it worked out really well. But right. then the other kids say, well, how come she has one and I don't? Well, their situation is not the same as ours. And then all of a right. sudden, you know, you know, maybe a parent's a little more affluent. You can go buy the next iPhone, you know, 13, whatever. It's like, well, how come she got this? Because that's the decision her parents made, right? So, you know, it, it, it's that. And we had them as kids growing up all the time too, right? New shoes, you know, first one to get the car at yeah. 16. Who got the new car versus had to go get that, you know, part-time job to get the you know, Honda Civic that was all rusted out, right? I mean, that's, we're going to experience that our whole lives. And and I think that it goes back to something you were saying earlier, right? We're at a point as a society of like this notion of luxury and free time and privilege. And I yeah. think that it, there's a balance, right? I mean, you can be on the cutting edge and bleeding edge of technology, but to some degree, you have to take, understand what those trade-offs mean. Like if you're going to get the first phone, guess what? Next to someone's going to get the next newest version. So, right. if you, you know, I mean, we see people always have to have the latest and guess what? It's an arms race to who's got the coolest phone and you're out, you know, $1,500 every six months because you've got to get the latest version of whatever. So, I mean, it, it, seeing my kids go through it, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you what we did. I mean, and we got some advice from other parents, again, parents sharing news, sharing information. You know, when it came time to, for phones in our house, because they all want it, they got Apple watches. So they could text. Wow. Oh, they could smart. make phone calls yeah, yeah. and it has a GPS. So I know where they are. 
They can't download apps. That's a nice sell too, because Apple Watch is pretty cool. <laughs> well, and, 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 and we've heard, well, it doesn't do this, doesn't it? I'm like, yeah, but guess what? If you need to, you can text. If you need to, you can call. Right. Um, and I'm not dealing with the phone, with the camera, with all the apps. So, you know, we, we kind of narrowed it down. So we've got the basics of what we need. And she's got the watch. And as a parent then, like she wants to walk down the street to Starbucks, text me when you get there, text me when you get home. And by the way, right. I can flip up my phone using Find My and see where they are. So that there's that, right. that degree of a connection or engagement. So this is using technology to kind of do some of the things that as parents you want to do. And then you got to kind of sit, let them know, here's how we're using it, right? So so we've got that trade-off. But I know there's going to be a point in time because now we're going to be in sixth grade. So they all get on the bus. Right. Everyone's going to be breaking out the phones. We've already said it's not going to happen in sixth grade year to my oldest. So we'll see how long we get tears before we, uh, we, we break down on that one. But we're going to put that up as long as we can. It, all, it just makes me wonder what other challenges will i don't have kids yet but you know we both want to have kids in the future uh what other challenges are yet to be seen you know because that seems like such a big deal i mean i can only imagine you get on the the bus when you're a kid because what do we do when we're a kid you, you get on the bus and you it's comparison yeah. right as you walk down the aisle it's oh what the shoes do they have the it's just natural you, right. you do that as a kid we do that as adults and getting on an airplane by the way too <laughs> literally right you're like what do you do first thing you do you walk by first class yep that's not it first class gets on the plane first and then you walk by first class if you're not sitting there so it's like yeah we do it as adults we do it as kids and you can just picture i mean if you close your eyes you can just picture the kid on the bus it's boisterous and loud and cool and they got the newest phone and the big screen and they're watching stuff that they probably shouldn't be watching in front of their kid and that's just a powerful environment that didn't exist when or it, it does i guess i back put all like it does exist it just exists in different degrees yeah. of expression I mean, and right now it's pretty express well, let me think about this way you, you know you got on the bus and you had the the kid who had the the latest clothing right so they had the jacket the sunglasses you know the high tops, right? And it's like, man, that kid's pretty cool, right? He's got the perfect hair, right? And, yeah. and then you got the other one who, you know, they got, you know, their older brother's clothes that don't quite fit right. I mean, we've seen right. it in different ways, and it's just representing itself in a piece of metal and plastic in somebody's pocket right now. Historically, too, the kid with the cool sunglasses and stuff, they, they peak senior year. And then it's all, you know, downhill from there. So don't be jealous, kids. Well, no, I mean, I, I'll tell you what. I mean, one of the biggest <laughs> eye-openers, I went back for a class reunion. And, you know, we had a five-year and a 10-year and so forth. Yeah. And you saw those kids, the best years of their life were, were 17, 18 years old. Yeah. I know. It's so weird how that happens. It, and, it, well, that's the whole computer science thing. I mean, I remember being in school, and, and computer science was such a off. It, it was such like a random point of study that at the time you know i was still told to learn the cursive alpha alphabet because colleges wouldn't accept your unless you hand wrote your acceptance letter like that's insane yeah. and uh, uh to see that in that time you know computer science really became the coolest thing of all i mean who if you look at the public sphere right now you got guys like elon musk right who could be quirkier and weirder then Elon Musk, and he's a, you know, born in a different time, it would be labeled as a, just a full-blown nerd loser, but he's not. He's like this innovator, and he's a little off socially, and but he's doing great, like great things. And so there's 
this new channel or, or new road available for those that are fascinated by this kind of stuff. Yeah, by I think data that's probably the one by numbers really cool and thing by math. That's right. Is that I mean, we're learning as a place for everybody, right? And you know, yeah. and it's okay that you didn't figure it out in high school. It's probably okay you didn't figure it out in college. It's you know, it, it it's the your ability to find your place that you're going to flourish. I mean. My, our former CTO that I used to work with at, at SVDS, he used to call it, you know, it's Revenge of the Nerds, right? All these yeah, kids were, were really making fun of. And look at, you know, look at the guys who are getting valuations of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars because of some code that they wrote. I mean, it, it, and they're the ones right. now who are driving the big cars and coming back to the high school reunions all flashy because they've earned it, right? I mean, you wouldn't have guessed that yeah. kid in the back of the classroom. Or in the front of the classroom, getting spitballs thrown at him was one day going to be a CEO of a of a billion dollar company. Right, and the yeah yeah, and the and the jock all star quarterback dudes got like a landscaping company in his hometown or something. Yeah, you know, maybe like, twisted it is really interesting. Senior year and never <laughs> yeah. did anything since. Yeah. Did uh, in in your career, you had a I'd, I'd like to maybe just unpack this timeline a little bit because I'm <laughs> yeah. sure I'm going to butcher it, but. If I'm understanding the timeline correctly, during your time at Deloitte, you also ran for Congress, right? I did. I did. Yeah. So how do you how do you one balance both of those at the same time? Because it wasn't like you, it's not like you worked in the snack bar at Deloitte. No, right? like no, you're right. In yeah. senior management, you've been there a long time. Your career is moving along. I can't imagine taking on that type of endeavor at the same time that you're in your career. So how did you manage those two things? Well, I mean, it, it, one of the things that, that became apparent, so yeah, so this was uh, the 2010 uh, congressional cycle. And, um, you know, that point in time, I mean, most of my career had been in healthcare. I mean, I'd been, you know, at Baxter and been consulting healthcare companies. And this is when the healthcare debate was in, was in full swing. And one of the things that frustrated me was I didn't see um, people actually understood how healthcare worked. We're talking about technology and, you know, Zuckerberg's example. At that point in time, I didn't see people who actually understood the healthcare system being part of the conversation. And, you know, I'm just, just by my wiring, I'm like, okay, I can, you know, yell at the TV or, or whatnot, or I can be, try to be a part of the solution. So uh, when I decided to run, um, I had to take a leave of absence from Deloitte because they're a federal contractor. So there had to be that gotcha. distance between my job as a as, as a senior manager at the time, um, and in in the work I was going to do as a congressional candidate. So I took a leave after about six months to go to go run that campaign, um, and then came back and you know picked up where I left off. And you know the experiences I had by doing that were very different than the experiences I had in my tenure at Deloitte. And it was fascinating when you came back. I mean, you know, because you bring it, it's almost like doing an internship. Like you come back, it's like, what did you right. learn? What was it like? So it, <laughs> it changed the kind of conversations and in, in, in the kind of, you know, it didn't change the consulting that I did, but it definitely, you know, gave me a different way of approaching the problems like how my clients were dealing with. But yeah, that was a leave of absence for the six months to do that. What was, what were some of those takeaways? I mean, that's a, that's a unique thing to go and do. And it's not, not a low-hanging fruit thing to do either. I mean, that's a big investment of your time, your energy, the campaigning, yeah. looking for, you know, people to support you. I mean, walk me through that process a little bit and some of the takeaways there. Yeah, I think, first of all, I mean, you know, and it kind of probably is what I'm doing right now. It's just like starting a new business in many ways, right? right. I mean, you've got to go find supporters. You know, the supporters are going to help work with you uh, or they're going to help finance you. So, right, so there's a lot, a lot of parallels between that and a startup but some of the things i thought were really interesting is um 
you know, when you run, you know, I ran in the Republican primary and, you know, I kind of went in with, with this notion of how I wanted to be, you know, provide solutions and ideas, how we could solve the healthcare problem. Well, that was always important to me. And you start talking to people and there's other things that are top of mind to them. If it's around marriage or abortion or guns, I mean, you think about, you know, there's, there's a whole calling card of the common Republican, you know, thing you, you have to align with to get the support of the party. Right. And some things I just have an opinion on. I mean, I've just never thought about them. They were never in my purview in my lifestyle. So, I mean, so you had to, had to understand some of those problems. And you also had to understand the process of going through and talking to people that were very passionate about them. And they didn't care about this. They cared about that. And if you didn't have a point of view that resonated with them about that, they were very quick to, to move on to the next candidate. So it was learning, you know, kind of what the hot topics are and what the button, what the hot buttons are for people. It was also learning that there's people out there that, you know, um, you know, it was, I'll give you an example. We went to a candidate's event and someone's grilling me on these set of topics. And all of a sudden I start listening and I'm realizing, okay, so that's this pundit, that's this pundit, that's this pundit. They're just reciting somebody else's talking points back at me and wanted me to, to respond to them. And it, you know, as a candidate, you kind of wanted to say, okay, what do you really think? Because I, I, I know what those guys think too, because I hear their stories as well. But what is it you think? And you realize as a candidate, it's a voter, right? I mean, they're not the one interviewing right. for the job you are. So you kind of have to get those, you know, reconcile those things. Um, so that was a big learning as well is kind of, you know, you can tell where people are getting their, we're seeing it today too, right? You can tell absolutely where people are getting their information and, and where they're forming their points right. of views. And, you know, that's probably an entire topic in and of itself, what happens with the media and the news cycles. But you start to put those pieces together and you have to start to figure out, okay, am I going to get pulled over in this direction to just try to win mm -hmm. a primary or am I going to stay right here in my lane? This is what I do. And if I don't have a view, if I don't agree, you know, the consequences will be what they are. So that that's where I really kind of find myself. There's just certain things I wouldn't compromise on. So so it sounds to me like a big part of that was like listening, your ability to listen to the people that you're talking to uh, without letting that wall come up. Which is, I mean, that that's kind of a lot of, a lot about like this type of stuff, right? Podcasting is uh, you always have a desire to say. Everyone does. It's part of conversation, mm -hmm. and we're conditioned to do that from a very young age you want to get your piece across. You don't want to miss your opportunity to say the smart thing that you think you should say. And in doing that, unfortunately, you can miss the biggest opportunities to really get the nugget or to talk to the person about the most interesting thing. So when you're in those situations and you're campaigning, it sounds like there was a conflict between you wanting to uphold your personal values while also recognizing that there's this game that you could totally play if you want to play it. Exactly. Do you want to be that guy? Yep. And and and, and, and is that what it came down I mean, to? It, 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 I mean, the result of that race didn't really come down to that. But I would say that that was some of my takeaway, right? I mean, I would say that hey, I really the growth that I did through that um, was just recognizing where I wasn't going to make trade offs, and if I wasn't the right candidate because I wasn't going to make those trade offs, that's probably the right consequence. Right. right. And, 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 and you learn to reconcile those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can tell those people who, you know, want to, you know, bullies a stronger, but really want to push you to adopt their point of view. And then once you say what they want to say, they're happy and they move on. And they forget that you basically parroted back what they said. I mean, I saw this happen with other candidates. Like they'll eventually parrot back what you say and they'll move on. And then they'll go to the next person. And we, we see it. Look, watch any of the any of the talk shows at night. Right. I mean, the same person will pivot through whatever that person's trying to push them to say. So they right. get the ratings, they get the soundbite, you know, and they can go on and kind of go on their, their merry way. And I think that's, you know, it, it, that's some stuff I took away from it. So it was, it was interesting from that perspective. 
Um, you know, the way I describe running for office, it's actually two jobs, right? You have the job of the candidate and then you have the job of, of the office you're, you're running for. And there's some people who are phenomenal candidates, right? They can raise all the money. They can host the big events. They can win all the, all the party support and get all the endorsements. But when they go to office, I mean, you know, they're an atrocious legislator as an example. And I think one of the big compliments I took away from it was, you know, is that a lot of people say, hey, listen, I can't support you in the primary because so-and-so is my guy. But if you went, if you go on to the general, I'm going to get behind you because I believe in who you are. I believe in your values. You listen to me, right? All those things that you'd want in an elected official, but it just didn't have the the air of I'm the big guy in the room. I'm getting all the endorsements. I'm getting right. all the money. So that's some of the trade off too. It's like you know, which role are you trying to fill? Are you trying to fill the role of the candidate? Or are you trying to fill the role of the office you're you're going after? If you could, kind of reflecting on that that process, having gone through it and really thrown yourself at it, what would you improve? to make that a more genuine like experience it maybe to me sounds like there's a, a lot of gamification going yeah. on there between candidates and um essentially the the popularity contest that we all know is going on yeah. in that in that scenario what's something that you would adjust to maybe get a more like righteous outcome yeah. there for the people that are running and then also for the people. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, it, it's it, it's super simple. It's, you know, making sure you've got the runway and that you've got the notoriety and you've got the support before you even enter the race. Um, if I were ever to do it again, I mean, I, I've kind of, you know, some people kind of say, would you do it again? Would you do it again? I mean, the only way I'd do it again, if, if I knew that I could, you know, get through the primary with as little friction as possible. So it means you've already got support, you already got name recognition, you already got funding for for the campaign. So I mean, you know, the classic example is like if you can drop into a campaign and let's say you've got, you know, whatever the magic number for that campaign, let's say five hundred thousand dollars already donated to you, already lined up, you know, that kind of stuff will will keep people away who are maybe exploring but don't have the financial support. So it's it's how quickly can you make sure that you know you you reduce that pool quickly. And again, right. and, and, and the things you do are the right things, right? So you, you get people who are going to support the campaign because they believe in who you are. You get people who are going to endorse you because they believe in who you are. So you've got the name recognition support, and it's basically like, all right, this is Geisler's. We're all going to step away here because no one else is going to take him out because he's got everything lined up. He's got the right. staff. He's got the support in order to make it happen. I think that's probably the one thing I would make sure was in place before I would ever do it again. Did that change your leadership strategy when you went back to work in the corporate setting? You know what it, what it did? It, you know, it's... I would say I've always, people always recognize I had a high emotional intelligence, but I would say that was a multiplier effect. Because especially when you go back to Deloitte, you know, people wanted to know what it was about. And one of the things I learned is that, you know, there's people who were friends of mine that they were strict, they were lifelong Democrats. And they were trying to pull me into some sort of argument. I said, listen, I can tell you both points of view, right? That's one of the things I learned is I learned to appreciate all the points of view that are out there. And I learned that I yeah. could I could make a case for either one. There's not a good or bad or right or wrong. You can make strong cases for either. So I'd say the big thing I took away was being able to, to listen and appreciate the diverse points of views that exist, being able to articulate them fairly without bias, uh, and then have a meaningful conversation. I think it's probably the one thing I learned is that, you know, at the end of the day, I really got excited about the policy discussions. Like not not what is the problem, but how do we together solve the problem? Like what is the right policy? Yeah that resolves the majority of people's needs. And again, you have to be able to listen to all points of views in order to be able to do that. I really like hearing that because I'm, 
I'm convinced that, and, and maybe this is one of the reasons I love doing this so much. I mean, it, it truly is like a flow state for me just being here. I, I really, really love having these conversations with people. So I really think that that's the thing, that that's where you actually make progress because you're right. There are, in any situation, any situation, there are points on both sides of the coin. Accept that. Then let's actually talk about what's going on. And, and more importantly than that, know that you might be wrong in this situation. And that's like, it's rare that you come across a conversation with someone where they truly enter it with you to learn yeah. from, from the conversation itself. It's so easy to end up and, and just bicker and fight with each other and catapult your opinions onto the other person. I mean, we're all guilty of yeah. it. But I really don't see, I do not see a way out of the calamity that we're in right now as a country unless people can sit down face-to-face and say, why do you think this? And actually mean why, not why do you think this? I want to put my piece in. And they're, they're really just waiting to jump in and say their thing. Yeah. Because other like, we're just more of this. It'll just be more division because then when you get met with resistance against someone else, what are you going to do? You're going to look for approval. So who are you going to look for approval from? Someone to your right or to your left of you. And then they're going to give it to you. And then you're going to disregard the other person that you were trying exactly. to understand and just go, well, I was right. Yeah. And, 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 and I think when it comes down, I mean, and, and there's a couple of things that are interesting about it. I think, first of all, you know, I think we're, we're people, what, 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 what most, most people who watch politics and media play itself out is they see the people who generate the sound bites, right? They're attention getting, they're loud, they're prolific. I mean, you know, so everyone thinks everyone in Washington or everyone in, you know, wherever your, your major, you know, political areas, those are the people who are doing all the work. I mean, then you have to recognize that there's people behind them, sometimes staffers, sometimes others who are elected in that same office, like you think at a legislative level, that are learning how to talk to each other and make trade-offs. I mean, you hear about the examples, like if you go to a dinner table in D.C., you'll see, you know, you know both congressional parties represent because they're all friends outside the office. I mean, you hear about the Supreme Court, right? They all talk about how they're actually a group of friends when they're not, you know, working at topics on the right. bench. And I think that that's where, where things really happen. But, you know, right now, the, 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 the state of media is we're given these outrageous personalities that grab sound bites. So we think that that's how everyone in D.C. thinks and works. To some degree, it is. And by the way, those people are out there being outrageous personalities because they were prob probably some of the same candidates I was talking about a moment ago. But they're also ones who are getting dollars and getting support and, and building clout. But they're not the ones necessarily passing policy or legislation. And I think that that's where right. we can probably feel a lot better. It's like when legislation goes through with strong bipartisan support, those kinds of conversations are happening. Well, and hopefully we can get to a place where that's more understood. You know, the, the, I think the sound bites and the, the pundits and the people that are maybe more brash in their approach and their opinions that show up on, on this tabloid or that header or, or this Instagram reel, it's, it's the same reason that it, as someone who spends a lot of time on social media trying to give people what I would think of, I hope, is beneficial information. I'll talk specifically about like the ski system, right? Yep. So 
my goal there is I want to give people in the information necessary to make informed choices about their training so they can ski better. That's like the genesis of, of what it is. And I love it, by the way. I'm a then, fan, right? Right there. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And then in expression of that, there's a conflict because the algorithm wants someone who sees the thing to stay watching the thing long enough to where another video similar to the thing can be suggested so they stay on the platform. That's not very conducive to sharing beneficial information right. because sharing information takes a while. Yeah. If I want to sit down with you, the viewer, and tell you about the benefits of doing compound movements for your ski season, already just in me saying that took 10 seconds. You're not watching the video anymore. So what do you do? You make something really flashy and catchy and in your face and big and like, you know, with noises and sounds and transitions and jumps and cuts and all this stuff that is so far away from the actual thing that you're trying to do. But it's the only way to generate traction within the algorithm. Let me ask you a and question. If you look at this these, topic fascinates go ahead. Yeah, me. Yeah. This topic fascinates me because, you know, getting back to data, right, you know, as, as, as a linkage in all these things, I completely get what you're saying, right, because there's that desire to create those things, content followers, because that's a metric somebody created, right? Yes. Someone created that as a metric, and that demonstrates somebody's value. So, for example, if you post something and you have one like versus 1,000 likes, does that mean the post isn't good? You know, I mean, like there was a while right. I was doing stuff on, on, on Instagram just purely as an experiment to myself around accountability. I didn't care if anybody followed it, but I said, I'm putting this out there. And the fact that I'm putting this out there, it basically says, hey, you put this out there. So you told people today you're going to do these three things or you're going to do this workout. And it just right. purely as an accountability check. And a handful of friends liked it. It wasn't for my friends. It was for myself. So the, I guess the question I have for you is when you create that content and do that kind of programming, um, what is the metric? you're using to demonstrate that it's accomplishing your goal so in the social media sphere the so here's the way that like in my head this funnel is wor working is that traction on a social media channel a growth of an audience and then that that audience is engaging with what you're actually doing because having a having a big group of people that aren't listening doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. but the only thing that matters is that any of those numbers convert to subscribers, paid subscribers on the website, right? Because that's what produces a drive to keep going and that's what gives you feedback that what you're producing is actually benefiting the people that are subscribing and that are utilizing everything. So on one side of it, you want the social channel to grow because that growth does seem to parallel subscription and membership and awareness. Right. But it's not a direct correlation so you can you know for example I'll, I'll put up i could reference a video that i used recently on the ski system that gets the best traction i've ever got on on instagram most engagement the highest reach likes shares comments bookmarks didn't correlate at all to subscriptions so monetarily the subscriptions matter the most but in terms of like a growth strategy on social media all those other metrics matter the most yeah, because I think the, so. I, no, I think you're spot on to something there, right? Because you, you, what you're really talking about is a pipeline, a funnel, right? Yeah, it's just exactly. It's another marketing funnel. Exactly. So if someone were to say, "Hey, tomorrow, hey, by the way, you know, our research says skywriting over Vail, Colorado, in November right. will drive you know engagement," you'd probably explore it, right? I mean, it's, uh, well, yeah, and especially if you could draw a correlation directly to you know membership, right? And I guess that, that goes back to more like what's the goal of the account in the first place? So if someone 
if someone's goal is to leverage their following to get paid partnerships, right, they're probably going to do anything that's just going to generate views, traction, and engagement at, at kind of any cost. Yeah. But if you're not looking to do that, like it, at the end of it, and, and this is something I've realized recently in, in this experiment of launching the ski system, is for a year, I was overlooking just general on-page SEO for the website. And in analyzing that, I went, wow, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. Like this page will never be discovered because organically in its current state, there's nothing actually pointing to what people are searching for when they're searching for a ski workout, the right exercises to do for the ski season. And that's a fault of me putting it in my language as a coach, not in the language that will be discovered by a potential user. And so when I saw that, I was like, wow, here's a huge missed piece of the puzzle because so many eggs are being put in the social media basket when, as you just touched on, it's just another it's another opening in the funnel, right? It's social media, it's blog posts and SEO optimization being featured on you know podcast shows, whatever. Mm-hmm. However you can tailor all those to just bring more people in the top and then really, really get granular on how you spit them out into the membership site. Yeah. And that in and of itself is a, you know, I mean, a whole nother like conundrum of trying to solve because it's, it's very difficult to do that. I'm fine. Well, and what I would suggest too is, you know, I think a lot about the, the, the customers you're taking on and you probably are getting enough data, like how many times people are logging on the site and their behaviors and whatnot. And what I'd be curious about is if you've been able to figure out like which customers are like the best customers you're getting in because they have the highest degree of engagement, they have a highest degree of feedback, they're demonstrating success versus, hey, you put the offer out there for, you know, the first month free and I signed up and then, you know, I cancel it, you know, on day 31. Are you getting a sense of that from, you know, from the usage patterns on, on your on your site? Yeah, so it's, it's actually been interesting to watch that kind of stuff between some of the things that they built when I had the web developers build the actual site from scratch they put a couple things into the back end to track like use time engagement what people what users are doing what when they're on the site and then combining that with google analytics to actually just look at like okay what's being how much time is spent on this page when you're on this page what things are clicked when this is clicked what does that go to what's someone's you know when they start a training program you know on a workout day how long do they stay in the program do they start and log off like it is interesting. It, it, to be honest, it's so much information for someone that hasn't spent a career analyzing data uh, outside of, you know, like one-on-one fitness stuff. It is so much information that in some sense it's overwhelming. And I think that in the original stint, that's why I overlooked just search engine optimization as a whole because it seemed like too big of a mountain to climb. But mm-hmm. having taken it now and then cut it up into little pieces to work towards, it becomes much more manageable. And you get some phenomenal insights. I mean, for a while, there was more engagement in Europe than there was in the United States, which was just a complete random byproduct of how things spread on social media. But interesting, when that happens, it does help you make informed decisions about where you could you know, direct your efforts, both monetarily and then personally on creating content that really drives that group of people. It ended up evening out and now it's much more split between the United States and Europe and Canada, but 
in the original part, I, it made me want to make all these decisions around that piece, right? Without mm -hmm. taking into account everything. So well, it's, context. We were talking about that earlier, the context, right? Totally, totally. So yeah, it's and, been and it's, uh, really fun. And I think that's really a cool opportunity is like, you know, when you, when you again, go back to this notion of data, it's trying to figure out things like, who is my ideal customer? Like who, you know, I may have a hypothesis of what they look like. So when, you know, a lot of times when I join an org, you know, I'm doing some consulting for an organization, talk about customer, like describe your ideal customer to me in terms of data. Right. Like, what does that look like? Because, what what kind know, of answers do you get from that? Well, you know, what's funny is most, most people don't think about it that way. I mean, like, like, for example, when I joined a team one time and I was trying to get a sense, like, you know, I joined in a business development role, you know, focusing on healthcare. And I said, you know, give me a sense of like your best customers. What do they look like? Like, how long do they take to buy? How long are they on? You know, how long are we working with them? What's the average revenue? Like just some demographic kind of stuff. And what I really found fascinating is most people don't think about that. But then you have to start to lay out questions. Okay. So for example, what would a good customer look like? Then? If you can't describe them, what would they look like? You know, yeah, and you start to really start to see interesting patterns. And, you know, I think that's the opportunity. So, for example, like you might think your sales cycle is 30 days. When we actually look at the data, it, like your CRM as an example, we might realize it's yeah. three months. And that's not right. a good or bad. It's like, let's start to manage expectations. And can you bring it in a couple of days? No, it actually is about three months. And here's why. Okay, great. So then let's set an expectation. You know, 30 days or three months is how long it's going to take to, to take someone from prospect to purchase. And then let's take those signals and make decisions and plans based upon it. So for example, if you're coming into the end of the year and you've got a forecast to hit whatever and your pipeline isn't active by, you know, by July or August, you're not going to make your number by December, right? Because you right. know you can't close deals in faster than three months. Right. So it, that's some of the stuff I like to have conversations with people about when it comes to the data and, and how they're using their data to make informed decisions. Speaking of informed decisions, when you decided to leave... You went from Deloitte to PricewaterhouseCoopers, right? And no, then I went to left Silicon Valley Data Science (SVDS). I went to go join the tech startup, and then you left that to start your own business. Yeah. So the trajectory was, you know, you know Baxter to Deloitte. Yeah. And then Deloitte took the depart, you know, the detour to do the congressional run, and then joined Silicon Valley Data Science or SVDS. Um, I love that place. That was a great place. They were acquired by Apple. You know, Apple yeah. basically said, we like your data scientists, we like your engineers, we like your architects. We can't hire a team fast enough. So they came in and acquired our assets. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, I went to PwC. I had some people recruiting me to join them at PwC and did that for about a year and a half. And then had an opportunity with a, with a former colleague of mine to start to stand up what we're calling Asgard Data today, which is a, a whole different a whole different way of thinking, but it's it's been a blast putting it together. When you reflect on these different decisions in your career going from... I mean, I think, you know, if you could go back and talk to a college kid who's about to graduate and you're like, hey, you know, you're, you're going to get to go work for one of the big four accounting firms and you're going to have a tremendous career there for 11 years, they'd probably be pretty happy, right? Like that's be pretty sufficient. When you look at your decision to leave there, when you look at your decision to leave Silicon Valley and more of like this tech startup environment and then to go out on your own, were those all just charge ahead decisions? Do you did you feel fear, anxiety around those? What was it like to make those jumps each time that you did that? Yeah, you know they they've become. I mean, they've become easier over time. Um, you know, I, I think. I mean, I'll use my transition from Baxter to Deloitte, right? I mean, I my first job, right? I mean, I'd been there a handful of years. 
everyone knew me. I mean, everyone there were, were had successful careers, you know, 30, 40 years at the same company kind of stuff. And I just realized I developed a skill set that just wasn't going to give me a lot of career opportunity. Right. And it wasn't anything disparaging. It's like, okay, here's the things I'm doing and really flourishing at. I don't see how they fit here and the opportunities weren't presenting themselves. And I had some friends who were in the consulting space and we had done some product work together and they got me introduced to Deloitte eventually and I was with them. A similar kind of thing at Deloitte, right? I mean, I realized there's a little bit of a square peg and round hole for as much as I tried to fit mm-hmm. that model. Um, you just realize there's just points in times that, you know, you, you, I, I describe it as this. When I was at Deloitte, um, there was another individual I hired at the exact same time. And, you know, nothing disparaging about it, but we just, him, but we said very different alignment and career aspirations. Like mine was to just get deep into the consulting and helping solve really complicated healthcare problems. He was very career oriented. And over time, you start to see how those decisions and trade-offs manifest itself in opportunities. I was doing really great consulting work, but my path to partner, which is kind of what those models are all designed to, to, to move you towards, was starting to diminish. I mean, there's fewer and fewer opportunities, and especially as you kind of get a, a further along, it's like your brand is taking you here and the partner brand goes here, so you have kind of a square peg and round hole kind of thing. So I, I, I was starting to already get a sense of that, you know, if I wanted to stay there, I was going to have to make some very deliberate trade-offs. So the things I wanted to do or the opportunities that were going to present themselves, and then I had an opportunity to go join SVDS, Right. It was the perfect opportunity, right? I got to try on a lot of different hats in a small organization, help build something. Um, and then, like I said, Apple acquired us after about, you know, two and a half years or so being there. And I had a chance to rejoin some of my Deloitte colleagues at PwC. And it was a great opportunity. The, the aspiration was to very much build the same kind of small incubator tech, right. you know, data product kind of company. And, you know, again, it kind of came apparent quickly that, Again, great organization, great people, but just the the things I wanted to accomplish didn't align itself with where the organization was going to go. And then I stayed engaged with a former colleague of mine, yeah. and we had an opportunity to, to start to dig in what's become Asgard Data. And has that been a, a quick and smooth transition, or are you dealing with hurdles and all sorts of roadblocks? Every day is another hurdle. Every day. But, you know, it, it, it's it's... It's one of those things I think you can appreciate it because you you know your career seems like it's gone through some of the same things that when you really dig into something that's mentally and emotionally and physically challenging, you feel growth, right? Sure. Even if you're not getting, even if the wins aren't on the board, you know you're growing and you have a forward moving trajectory, yeah. and that's really really been one of the special things about it. I mean, you know, we we've built a pretty special culture early on. And the people have helped us, you know, even as, as interns and as kind of temporary, you know, volunteer help. I mean, everyone's had a really good experience for it. So it's been incredibly rewarding. But every day, yeah, every day there's another hurdle. Every day there's another opportunity. You wish you would have done some something differently. But, you know, for all of those, I still wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, I feel like it's in those those moments that are... It's the most growth, but it's also it's the most fulfilling because... You could be doing it for somebody else, you know, and you're not. And even if there, you know, monetarily there was, if you could just look into the future and you go, okay, I know that if I'd stayed at Deloitte, it would have been monetarily X. There's a point at which like that doesn't matter. It's the, because the growth and the individual development and the ability to impact a team, a group of people, a community to create a culture that is the living in the now. That's the, that is the most enriching environment that you could probably be in. Yeah. And there's something about that, that then when you're in that position, 
you end up creating the, it's like you're the doing the best expression of yourself. You're living up to your potential. And that is like, I mean, I think that that's the biggest fault of anyone is to come. And my biggest fear as an individual is to not live up to what my, my imagined potential could be. And so to yeah. at least and explore know, the fringe, right? Explore yeah. the fringe. Yes. I mean, go right to the edge and see what that's like. And, and you, you know, yeah, there's a lot of fear and anxiety in it. But when you realize that, first of all, I mean, nothing I'm doing is death defying, right? right? It's not like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going out on the front lines. I'm, I'm taking any sort of physical risk. I mean, there's reputation risk and financial risk. Um, but I honestly believe that if you do good work and you put good things out there, um, good things will come. They may not happen as fast as you want them to. But when you can kind of at the end of the day, maybe in the longest day of your life, you may have had tons of really hard phone calls or whatever it comes down to, you can kind of say, we did something good today, though. Yep. Right? We, we moved the needle for somebody. We, we gave somebody some value. I mean, that's, that's, that's the exciting part about all of this. Absolutely. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on here. I'm sure we'll have to do this again. There's a lot of points that we covered but didn't dive deep enough into. So yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Abe, thank you so much, man. I appreciate the opportunity.